Good morning, everyone. Man, okay, disclaimer, this sermon might get a little weird. (laughs) Um, So, first off, so excited about where Monica is leading us with the missions, and um, this really has been a huge heart of our church to be involved with the gospel going forward and thinking about how do we do that? How do we do that to the ends of the earth? But how do we do that right here at home? And um, I love the opportunity for involvement. I love how practical it is and how it's just intersecting right there in the need. And um, this is whatever we're doing here. It, it should be like that. These We're not here just talking about ideas or concepts. We're, we're talking about things that really engage with life, with the day-to-day. Hopefully what we take from this morning applies to tomorrow. It applies to the rest of our lives, how we live, what we do, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we put um, at the forefront of our minds, what we think about. So anyway, that being said... Um, an interesting week this week in kind of looking through some of the news and um, things that, you know, I feel like are becoming so familiar. We, we look at a world that's filled with violence, that's filled with um, just heartbreak and tragedy all around us. And, um, you know, I, I read this week in a book that I'm reading with a book group, uh, a quote from this rabbi who said, there's more good than evil in the world, but not by much. And I've just been sort of sitting with that. Like, and part of me is going, I'm not totally sure that's true sometimes. I think sometimes it can feel like there's more evil than good in the world. Um, but this idea that there is, there is more good, but not by much, that there's a struggle, that, that we're coming into this world to shine light into darkness, and, and that the need for that is a desperate need. And then you've got all this other stuff going on in the world that just sort of gets weird. I don't know about your inbox, but I was getting emails this week talking about like these 256 titansaur eggs found in India. These are like dinosaur eggs. Did you hear about this? And they're like crazy. So this shows you what I spend my time reading. Like, whoa, these massive dinosaurs. They're figuring out more like connections with birds and all this from the eggs and and then at the same time, I get all this chat, GPT, is anybody, all the AI stuff? Is anybody, like, the whole world just changed this week. I don't know if you know, but uh, the Internet just, you know, awakened this week. And so you've got all this artificial intelligence stuff now that's, that's coming about. And I, I did get a few desperate emails like what does this mean is this the matrix is like everything coming to an end and you know and I I thought okay this to me where's the intersection as we're talking about wisdom how does it fit into all of this right this weird perspective of looking back on the way life was at one time and a little glimpse of where we're going I um I was like thank god for um Season three of All Creatures Great and Small. Is anybody watching this right now? Like, can I just go back to like the 1930s? Like, I just, I think I might become a veterinarian and just work with animals, right? Like, life was simple back then. Um, although in that, in that season three, they're on the brink of war, right? Nothing new under the sun. But, um, anyway, it, it's a weird world we live in. And yet the truth is, I had a professor that used to say, 
like you're the team on the field right now, right? Like of all the times God could have placed you here, you're here now and here for a reason. And as we talk about wisdom, we want to talk about wisdom that intersects right there with where people are at, especially with technology going faster and faster. I get all these like Jurassic Park flashbacks of like, we can make dinosaurs. And you're like, is that a good idea? But we're not, we're not slowing down. And so anyway, this morning, as I was coming to this text and really the desire is to spend some time talking about the heart. You, you can't talk about wisdom without talking about the heart. Scripturally, this is where it places wisdom, which is interesting, right? We, we think wisdom belongs in the mind, but biblically it belongs in the heart. What does that mean? Do we even understand what that means? And, and how does that intersect with what we're talking about here today? And so, Feeling somewhat overwhelmed, I decided, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And I asked Chat GPT to write the sermon for me today. <laughs> and it did. So here we go, Proverbs 4.23. As I asked, biblically speaking, what does it mean to guard one's heart? And this is what it said to me. According to the Bible, guarding one's heart is important for maintaining spiritual and emotional well-being. Proverbs 4.23 states, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Apparently the internet reads the NIV. Good to know. (laughs) This verse suggests that the heart is the source of one's thoughts, actions, and motivations, and that it is essential to protect it from negative influences. Some ways to guard the heart, according to the Bible, include filling it with God, filling the heart with God's word by regularly reading and meditating on scripture. One can ensure that their thoughts and actions are aligned with God's will. Practicing spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, and worship can help one stay connected to God and resist temptation. Being cautious of who you allow in your inner circle, surrounding yourself with people who are positive and uplifting can help protect the heart from negative influences. Being aware of what you allow into your mind, guarding your mind by being mindful of what you watch, listen to, and read can help you to protect your heart from harmful influences. Focusing on God's character and nature, knowing God's love and grace helps us to trust him and rely on him for protection and guidance. Ultimately, guarding the heart is not something that can be done by human effort alone. The Bible teaches that it is through faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that one can truly protect their heart. Whatever, whatever, right? <laughs> Stupid. Like, I mean, how freaky that it just wrote that for me, right? This isn't like a Wikipedia thing that if I, it writes that for you and you're like, oh, but it's not wrong. <laughs> it's a pretty good message. And that probably would have taken me, I don't know, maybe an hour. And it was like, ding. So anyway, I'm considering switching jobs. <laughs> So if anybody's like hiring a 50-something ex-preacher with an obsolete doctorate in theology, let me know. And, you know, I think the reason we get nervous with this kind of thing, this ability to process knowledge, right, is that we kind of think, isn't that what we do? Isn't that what makes us significant? 
that sort of ability to creatively pull things together, right? And it's drawing from trillions of sources as it does this, right? Our poor little brains are like, ah, I think I read something sometime that said, right? You know, and it's got all of this here. It's like this calculator, and we're thinking that our value is our ability to do the multiplication tables. The world's changing, but but the good news is the the thing that makes humans human your value your true value really has nothing to do with this this ability to process information it's a tool and i think a lot of times as somebody who studied philosophy these things get confused i remember forever ago so when i when i was at uh, talbot i studied philosophy there and I, the thing that makes me nerd out is philosophy of mind. I, lo- I took like every elective class in this. And um, what is human consciousness? How does the mind work? And so read kind of the whole gamut. There's this guy, Paul Churchland, who um, taught about once, once um, artificial intelligence can replicate human processes to the level that we can't differentiate, that only a bigot would refuse it full human rights. Such an interesting idea, right? Like, if you can't tell the difference, it is human. And people have been questioning this idea. What is consciousness? What is the soul? What does that really mean? And most of kind of the secular philosophy just sees it sort of from the outside, like observing and noticing these things and and coming to conclusions. And their logical conclusions, they're consistent with sort of their premise and there's this guy, Peter Singer, who's very controversial, but uh, he, he talks about this idea that it's our consciousness, our intelligence that differentiates our value. So the smarter you are, the more sort of awakened you are, the more value you have. So he's very pro-euthanasia. In fact, he would say you should have up to a year before you decide whether or not you want to keep your child because it's Right? So, I mean, like, gets you, right? Because you're going, you see them kind of working within this. What is the soul? What is value? You want to hear something funny about Peter Singer is that, and he would do debates. He did a debate out here at UCI, and um, and one of my friends was kind of behind the scenes in that and said, you know, you get this, like, whatever, like, the writer or whatever that comes like that, that says, here's the rules. If you're going to have Peter Singer come in and debate... He's got an ailing mother and you're not allowed to bring her up. <laughs> right? It's like the fly in the ointment. It's like the inconsistency in his logic that you go, you can have these ideas, but then something deep within us knows, like, wait a second. That this idea of humanity, it's something so much deeper probably than we realize. And that you can have all the philosophy in the world to justify it. My daughter just was visiting the Museum of Tolerance. And one of the things that they say is that the repercussions that the Holocaust had on the German soldiers tore their minds apart, what they were doing, even though it was rationalized and justified and defended philosophically. Something in their humanity was repulsed by what they were doing. And... The Bible is actually really sophisticated when it talks about the soul. 
And as we're studying wisdom, understanding this, it's not just an understanding of who we are, or how we function, but where our true value lies. And again and again, it's rooted in this idea of the soul and even deeper than that into the heart. That that is this thing about you that is unique. And chat GPT doesn't have a soul. And the reason I know this is I asked. (laughs) And it said, no, I'm a machine learning model and do not possess the concept of a soul, which was a huge relief. But this thing, when we talk about this, right, when we're looking at our world and and all these ideas and this sort of swirl of everything out there, what we have to speak to is something true and deep and profound that makes sense, not just out of this world, but speaks to the very heart of the problem where it's broken, that's bringing things back in line with the way they were meant to function and designed to function. And as we take the time to unpack this, like I said, it may get a little bit strange or a little bit meta, a little abstract, but, but understanding the soul is so important so that we understand how to guard it, how to protect it. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. If you don't know what the heart is, you don't know what to do about that, right? Like, how do I protect the heart? And Dallas Willard says that the heart is this distinct part of the soul. And that the soul, each one of you, your soul is composed of a few different elements. And so I thought as our introduction, because we're going to spend a few weeks on the heart, I, I would just talk a little bit about what these areas of the soul are. Because in order for us to live, it's about bringing these things together in a way that is congruent with how they're meant to work. And then what we see, interestingly enough, is that there's a critical relational part of this as well. That it's not enough to just get things internally congruent. It has to be within the flow of what gives us life and how we give life. This is what awakens us. So Dallas Willard, who wrote a great book on the heart talks about the soul as being composed of these things, our thoughts, our feelings, our body, our social context, and our will. And so I want to give just like a quick little indicator of this. But, um, you know, uh, there's all these scriptures that point to this. So, you know, like Luke, he says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, right? This holistic, this is what it means to thrive. As we talk about becoming like Christ for the sake of others, it's going to happen in wisdom. It's going to happen in stature. It's going to happen in relationship to God and in relationship to others. And bringing these things together requires us paying attention to what is going on in our mind, our thoughts. That we have control over what we think about, what we pay attention to, what we draw to the forefront of our minds. Our imagination is all connected to our mind. It's this powerful instrument that we have that we can turn towards different things. And, And it can be extremely fun. Like you can go down all kinds of rabbit trails in your mind. You can also spiral obsessively into anxiety. Anybody relate to that? I definitely do. 
that our mind, our thought is a huge part of who we are. And learning to discipline our mind, as we're going to see in just a sec, to renew our mind, to transform our mind, is a huge part of how we thrive as a, in our soul. This is what allows us to dream and imagine, to envision the future, all of these things. But if not done well, it can spiral inward into self-obsession, self-centeredness, and all forms of evil. So as we talk about our soul and talk about thriving in this world, our minds will be a critical piece of this. But they're not the only piece. And coupled with this is our feelings and our emotions. And, you know, if we did a little Myers-Briggs test here, some of you would be more thinking people. Some of you would be more feeling people. But the truth is all of us are both. And all of us are far more emotional than we realize. That oftentimes our emotions are the thing kind of at the wheel, wouldn't you say? I, I like how Brene says we're not thinking creatures that have feelings. We're feeling creatures that have thoughts. Part of growing in our soul is paying attention to our emotions. Paying attention to what is going on inside. And the interesting thing is generally when scripture refers to mind, it's not just talking about thoughts. It's talking about thoughts and emotions because the two are so integrated. Learning how to function in a healthy way as a healthy soul requires both of these things working together, which means not ignoring emotions, which is sort of my tendency to do. I like to stuff them down, but they all come eventually back to the surface. Part of your soul is your body. And this is an interesting one, but this is one that Scripture insists on over and over again. The Greeks liked this sort of ghost-in-a-machine idea of the soul, that, that you were sort of this person that could leave your body and go to another, like Freaky Friday or something like that. Do you remember that old Disney movie? Like you could switch bodies and still be you. And the, the truth is we're rooted in our bodies. Our bodies are a huge part of who we are, which is why I think Scripture is so sacramental, it's so physical. You notice what they're in the gospel or in the letters and the epistles, so much of what's being written about is the physicality of our faith. The Greeks wanted to get rid of that. But, but the incarnation of Jesus insists on this, this bodily focal point that we have. Caring, stewarding our body is a part of stewarding our soul. And I like how Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's an interesting thing. Our bodies have a sort of knowledge, a sort of rote way that they behave. And so part of us functioning as a fully functioning, thriving soul is bringing our body into this place of submission. If we don't, it sort of reacts on its own and does its own thing, right? And this is like, again, it's like my wife, when she sits in the passenger seat of the car, she falls asleep. <laughs> Not so much anymore. <laughs> it's just being automatic, right? Like something about it, just your mind like knows what to do, right? goes to sleep. Anyway, but we have these like sort of patterns or behaviors, our habits, our day-to-day lives, all this forms, and it forms our soul. It's a part of who we are. That's not like some thing that we hold at arm's length. It's a part of who we are. We'll break these down a little bit as we go forward, but um, this fourth one, our social context. 
to me, I think this is what gets really fascinating in Scripture. Almost more than any of these things is going to really insist on this one. That who you are, your soul functioning, you've got to get the social piece down. This is what we have to pay attention to. That for our soul to function right, it has to be connected to this source of life. And it has to be serving and giving. These two things are crucial pieces for you to thrive. That we're hardwired for this sort of connection. It's how we're built. And we love God and we love our neighbor. And the two are like, are just really a restating of the same thing. John's going to say in his first epistle, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is like the wisdom of Scripture speaking to the soul, right? These other guys are going around going, well, maybe we're just all meat computers, right? And and I get that would be Paul Churchland. But these ideas of what we are, right? Like you go, this is where I say Scripture is so sophisticated in what it's talking about, so holistic. And it's saying as we're coming here to church, what are we here to talk about? How to bring our lives, all of this together, And at the very heart of this thing is the heart, the will, your chooser, your decision maker. And this ability to choose, this ability to decide, this ability um, to act in freedom, creative freedom, is probably at the heart one of the most powerful things about every single soul. When it says that we have been given like the design of God, right? That that we're made in his image. It's talking about the heart, really. This power center that makes us capable of relationship, capable of love, capable of laying down our will for something else. I mean, certainly all of you have pets and those pets have a measure of guilt, right? They know when they're doing something wrong, right? But there's like something in them too that just can't help themselves. And you know, they're your cats eating what it's not supposed to be. And it looks at you like, shoot, I'm busted. But, but it's following this instinct, right? And this humanity is this, this deeper thing that resonates with how we ought to live, understands we're called to more that speaks to these deepest parts of who we are. Tim Keller says this, In the Bible, the heart is not primarily the seat of the emotions in contrast to the head as the seat of reason. Rather, the heart is the seat of your deepest trusts, commitments, and loves from which everything flows. What the heart most loves and trusts, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. What the heart most loves and trusts, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. It's right at the center there. And this is what Solomon's telling us. Guard it. Keep that pure. Don't let things come in and contaminate that. Distract that. We talked last week about the fool, and the fool is like this undisciplined, right, person. And in Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That, that if we don't protect this heart, 
All kinds of things come in and grab its attention. All kinds of things want to speak right to that heart and say, this is what to buy, or this is what you should do, or this is what you need. This is what you're missing. Here's what you're missing out on. And when we open ourselves just wide up like that, it's like lowering the defenses, tearing down the wall, allowing anything to come in to that heart, to shift our desires, to twist it. And most of that in fear or insecurity or vanity or any of these things is going to turn us inward to ourselves and it's going to break us off from God and break us off from others. When we talk about an enemy, this is what the enemy wants to do, right? Wants to just ruin that soul. And the ultimate thing is it's going to cut us off from both of those. And what we lose then, what what happens is our soul withers, we lose our life. And Jesus is pleading with us to, to be brought to life. That's why he's come, to give us life and to have it abundantly, to, to help us function how we were meant to function. And so really at the heart, we come to church to practice that, to participate in that, to join together in that, to celebrate that, to remind each other to keep going. In Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And when all these things are functioning congruently, when our minds and our emotions are are functioning in a way where they're focused on God, submitted to his will, this is where we thrive. A machine will always be able to regurgitate information better than we ever can from now on. And, and there might be some really cool benefits of that. You may walk into your fridge soon and go, based on what's inside of you, give me like six recipes for dinner tonight and it's going to pop that stuff back up, right? That's it's a brilliant technology. But deep down, like when we look at the world, when we look at the grief, when we look at the evil, when we look at the things that are wrong, All of that is stemming from hearts that are sick, hearts that need to be set free, hearts that need to heal. In Psalm 16, 7 through 9, the psalmist writes, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I love this. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Do you see that? All those pieces of who you are, all those things coming together, and what he is doing in his heart is turning attention, setting the Lord before him because he's at my right hand, right? Where he was all along. And so often in life, we we lose our peripheral vision, And we become so narrowly focused, right? This is, again, the mind turning inward. The emotions becoming overwhelming. And all of a sudden we lose sight. Oh, God is right there. And this idea of this choosing from the heart to set God before you. And this is kind of where I want to end up today.
is going like sort of what's one takeaway for today? What's one tool? And this is going to be so simple. But, but the truth is one of the most powerful things we've been given to guard our heart. And I'll admit chat GPT included this on their list, but <laughs> is prayer. And when we think about prayer, sometimes this is the sort of afterthought, right? Like, oh yeah, maybe we should pray. And I can be like that as much as anybody. Like, God, I'm going to get this job done, so don't interrupt me. Right? Like, I'm going to do your will, and then I'll check in at the end and make sure that sounds okay. Right? And, and you, I'm sorry to admit that's terrible, but it's true. I mean, like, and to go, the heart, and the power of the heart is to be able to turn that focus back to where God is there, front and center in the picture. And you're like, oh, where you were already... I always joke that I'm going to design a spiritual formation app and it's just going to keep asking you the same question. Jeff, where is God right now? Where is God right now? Where is God right now? Because you're constantly like, oh, there you are, right here. And I mean, I think, gosh, this is, if this is one takeaway is all you get is to say prayer is this way of, of turning our attention and our gaze back to God. If that's all you did in your prayer, it reframes the whole thing. But to function and to thrive in our life is learning to do that all the time, which might sound overwhelming. So, you know, we can start small, but in First Thessalonians, Paul's going to say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And this prayer is so much more than just our words or what we're saying or what we're asking for. It's a way of living prayerfully is a way of keeping this wide gaze that God is always there, always present. When we're doing that, we are praying without ceasing. There's a book and I'm blanking on the author. If if I had AI right now, I would know it immediately. But um, letters from a modern mystic and I'm forgetting his name. But anyway, he writes, he's a missionary who sought to every hour draw his attention back and submit his will to God. And then he would go like every 30 minutes and then like every 15 minutes. He wanted to like, how do I pull my mind constantly back into this place of submission? Our elder board is reading a book by Oswald Chambers that's called If You Will Ask on Prayer. And we're one chapter in and already I'm like, oh, this is so good. But but Oswald says this, um, or Oz as we refer to in our house, but um, prayer is an interruption of personal ambition. And no person who is busy has time to pray. If we do not pray, what will suffer is the life of God in us, which is nourished not by food, but by prayer. Prayer is an interruption of personal ambition. I love that, right? This thing where I want to go, my mind, what I want to do, all the things that I'm here to accomplish today. And prayer is like, slow down, Jeff. Slow down. This interruption, this setting aside our will, this is what the heart's like there to do. It's like its most powerful function is bringing our will into submission. Our personal ambition is going to fight that. 
This is critical. Here, a little C.S. Lewis, just for the sake of. He says, I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. He says, it doesn't change God, it changes me. It might change God some. I mean, there's, there's grounds for some of that. But you get his point, right? That you're going, so often what needs to happen for me is my heart, my will being brought back to that place of submission. And when it is, we can accomplish our purpose, what we're here for. As we think about this life, what are we here to do? Not to produce content. We are here for a purpose and designed but to bring that life to the world, to bring that blessing to the world. And it happens by receiving and then giving. In Luke 10, we're told that Jesus is asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And as we're coming to the end, it's this is the thing that we want to keep front and center. That coming to church is a way of practicing life. It's about engaging in life together. We get to come together. I think, honestly, some of the most important things that happen in church happen on the patio afterwards, where we interact, where we love each other, where we get to know each other. That community coming to life. And where we encourage each other to keep going, but encourage each other to go out and serve. I love how Shirley got up last Sunday and said, there's a cold weather shelter. How do we participate in this? Right? This is what we're here to do. This is what humans do. Souls properly aligned with God serve and love, especially the least. Why? Because every single person out there possesses this deep center, this beautiful heart that God loves, that God wants to grow and heal. I love how James is going to say, we receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. And this is what we want to bring to life. This is what we want to thrive in our church. This is what is going to transform us, our minds, our emotions, our bodies, our relationships, and our hearts. Psalm 119.32 says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And that's what God's doing. Enlarging that in you, enlarging that in me. And by the way, on Wednesday mornings, we have a prayer time. And if you're wondering how to engage, there's a great way to do it is to jump in from 8 to 9. Well, it's usually like 8 to 9.15 on Wednesday mornings in the upper room we pray any of these studies, practicing that in your daily ritual, whether it's in the morning, laying that before God, in the evening, submitting to God. Any of these ways that we practice prayer, practice that turning and focusing on God, remembering that He's right there, and praying like Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Here's your questions, and then we're going to go eat some tacos. How often are you aware of God's presence with you? What could you do to increase your awareness? Maybe begin your day in anticipation and end in reflection. 
It's a wonderful book I love uh, by John Bailey called A Diary of Private Prayer. And it has a morning and an evening prayer. And usually in the morning, he's like, we're going to take the hill. And in the evening, he's like, I'm so sorry. But (laughs) it's like such a great rhythm, right? Number two, how honest is your prayer life? How transparent are you with God? How can we bring God all our heart, our mind, will, and emotions? Praying, learning to pray like David, a man after God's own heart. Those prayers of authenticity, vulnerability, courage. God welcomes all of that, your whole soul. Number three, how congruent is your will and God's will? Do you find yourself resisting where God is leading? Are you becoming impatient? Can you pray along with Jesus, his prayer in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for us as we draw to a close. We're going to have people down front to pray. We're going to keep this door shut if that's okay, just so we can keep this kind of as a set-off place for prayer in the front. So we encourage you, everybody kind of out the back, and then just make a left back there and go um, enjoy some fellowship. But God, as we close, I thank you, God, for the way that you illuminate our heart. God, the way you reveal in us your design, your brilliant design and your invitation for abundant life, God. I pray for us as a church that we'd be continually growing and healing in this way. That we'd become more and more like you, more and more like Jesus. God, fill us with blessing that we might pour it out sacrificially on those around us. God, let us be a light of hope in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.